Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode 12, Gender and Authenticity. Hello, happy listeners. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome to Positive Disintegration, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, and with me is co-host, Dr. Chris Wells. Hi, Chris. Hey, Emma. Good to see you. It's good to see you too. And um, I'm looking forward to a lazy day today. Well, that must be nice. I wish I knew what a lazy day was like. Maybe I'll have one tomorrow. Maybe. Um, But more because we've got two guests unusually on. So um, I'm hoping to listen to some stories and butt out of things and, and learn and sit here and drink my coffee. Well, uh, we allow our two guests to enlighten us on the subject of gender and authenticity. I'm looking forward to it too. So I met Tamara in 2017 at the SANG conference, supporting the emotional needs of the gifted. And her son had just come out as trans a couple weeks before. And it's really been an honor to have been a part of Tamara's life, you know, for these past several years at this point. And I just am grateful for her friendship because at that time when we met, I was kind of going through my own gender questioning. It was that summer when I, I remember I put like that I was non-binary, like in a Twitter profile long before I was ready to actually say it in my actual life. And so, um, you know, now I just have only recently started well living as my authentic self and as a non-binary person. And so, I'm really grateful that she's with us today and she had her friend Ellie come on with us, you know, as the other guest. And I read Ellie's book in preparation for the episode. It's called Getting to Ellen and it is incredible. So I'm really excited to have both of you with us today. Let me introduce uh, our listeners to our guests. So first of all, we have Ellie Krug. Uh, In 2009, Ellie was a civil trial attorney in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Uh, with 100-plus trials when she transitioned from male to female. And she later became one of the few attorneys nationally to try jury cases in separate genders. She's the author of the book, as Chris mentioned, Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change, which was published in 2013. And Ellie has trained people on diversity and inclusions in court systems, law firms, Fortune 100 corporations, and colleges and universities on more than 1,000 occasions. So firstly, welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thanks so very much, Emma. I'm thrilled to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. We're glad to have you on. We also have Tamara Grady, and Tamara is an Osseo District School Board member in the suburbs of Minneapolis. And she's a proud mum of children who are part of the LGBTQ community. Tamara has a master's degree in gender studies and anthropology and recently earned a master's in advocacy and political leadership. Welcome, Tamara. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here with you all. We're so glad to have you with us. So we'd love to hear more about your journeys. Ellie, reading about your story in the book was amazing, and it's hard to even know where to start. You know, we center this podcast around a theory. It's it's really a theory about becoming your authentic self. And when I read your book, that's exactly what came through in your story. Um, you know, in particular, I was just struck by 
you know, you came from a traumatic background or, you know, your father died by suicide. Um, you know, you've been through so much and to read about like the unfolding process of you knowing that you had this part of you that you were denying and eventually just coming to a place where you were ready to be yourself. Can you just talk to us about what it has been like for you to, to become Ellie? Well, sure. Um, you know, I think the place to begin with is that I grew up in the sixties and the seventies when, you know, the word transgender really hadn't been invented and, um, you know, society was, I mean, you know, Stonewall occurred in, you know, Greenwich village in 1969. So I was at that point, I was, uh, 11, 11 years old going on 12 and, and, you know, it was a way, way different time. And, and the idea that your brain couldn't, you know, match your body, it was just way, way outside of the realm of, I think, most people's consciousness. So I did what most people in that era did who are trans, and that is that I suppressed. And I thought naively that it would go away. I really did. I, you know, I thought, oh, this is just a phase you're going to go through. Don't worry about it. It'll go away. I fell in love with a girl when I was 15 years old. I thought it would go away then. It didn't, but she turned out to be my soulmate. I tried to tell her about what was in my head about gender and uh, she freaked out. And I learned an important lesson that most trans people learn, which is if you ever allow people to know about the true you, you will lose them. And, uh, and so she and I never talked about it again for 30 years. We ended up, you know, I ended up going to law school. She followed me to Boston where I went to law school. I graduated on, I took the last final on a Thursday and she and I got married on the next two days later on Saturday. Um, and we built this incredible life with me presenting as a man. Um, it was the kind of life that most people would, you know, just give their right arm for. We ended up living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in the U.S., um, in the best neighborhood, in a beautiful house that we rehabbed three times, um, you know, three cars in a four-car garage, two beautiful daughters. So the importance of things I'm not giving to you in the right order here. Um, you know, and I had a, I had all kinds of social stature. I was a very well-respected trial lawyer. And, um, and I just knew that if this stuff in my head ever came out um, to the world, I knew that I would lose everything. And so I, you know, I, I suppressed, I went to therapy. I asked therapists, well, I commanded therapists not to figure me out, but to just give, help me to stay married, give me some kind of a, a mantra, some kind of a thing I could yell at myself in my head whenever Whenever the dysphoria, that is the, the discomfort because your brain does not match your body, when the dysphoria got too intense, you know, and I went through therapists because, you know, they kept telling me that uh, I needed to tell my wife which, what, what was in my head or that I would kill myself. And then eventually I had a moment of truth um, on 9-11 where I realized on that evening that uh, someday I'd be laying on my deathbed and I would regret my entire life for having been a coward. And it was on the night of 9-11 that I decided that I would um, that I would go and be me, whatever that was going to be, because, you know, I didn't have a full, clear idea. It took three years to leave my wife. It took another five years for me to transition. 
you know, and, and, and everything that I thought would happen did happen. I lost my wife. I lost a daughter. I lost my law firm. I lost, you know, a social stature, but, uh, and I, and it sounds like we're starting on a negative note, but let me make sure that your listeners understand this. I don't have a regret whatsoever about becoming me, not at all. You know, the, the studies show that the top, the top regret of the dying in hospice is that they didn't live a more authentic life. That is the top regret. It's not like, oh, I wish I had saved more money or I'd wished I worked more. I wish I had a thinner TV to parrot a commercial that's on right now for Expedia or something like that. But um, the top regret is I wish that I had been more authentic to myself. And so I've learned the difference between loss and regret. Loss fades over time. Yes, I still miss my ex-wife. I still love her. But it is faded, okay? And by the way, I also actually just want to date men now. So that's a whole different story. Um, But the loss fades. But regret burns far hotter over time. And the reason it burns far harder is because you have less time to fix whatever it is that you are regretting. And so, um, and I've learned, it took me a long time. I mean, I had to write the book to understand the difference between loss and regret, because I used to think they were the same thing. Not at all. I am so much more at peace as Ellie Krug, even though I'm alone, you know, and even though, you know, so many things happen. By the way, the daughter that I lost came back. Um, and she and I are good now. And it really, another thing that came across in your story is that you, I mean, you did have all of these loving relationships and you had so much support throughout your life too, which is, you know, obviously a, a beautiful thing to see. I've been best friends with somebody for 52 years. He was the eighth grade quarterback on the football team. I was the frontline guard. And uh, he's like a man's man, okay? And, you know, but he never, ever left me. He totally accepted me. And thank God that he did. His name is Dennis Tharp. I call him Thap, T-H-A-P. That's the nickname for him. And uh, I just, I am so incredibly thankful that he didn't leave me. And my brother didn't leave me, my brother Mark. He just... He started, my brother was calling me sister and using female pronouns before I came out to anybody. You know, I had, I did have support. I was very, very lucky. And a lot of trans people who transition don't have the kind of support that I did or privilege that I did. And I want to make sure I acknowledge that. Let's make sure we make it clear on this podcast. I am in the top 0.05% of transgender people. I have resources. I have education. I pass if I don't open my mouth um, and, um, and I'm darn lucky. And I know that because I have that privilege, there are things I'm trying to do in the world for others. So Tamara, tell us about your journey of being the parent of a trans son. Um, well, thank you for that question. Um, well, it all started right when we met Chris and I was, you know, sort of in a state of shock and it wasn't like I had any intention of not supporting my child. 
but it was like, what do I do with this information? Because at that time, you know, I was at Sing because I was learning, continually learning how to advocate for two gifted girls. And, you know, everything that I learned in advocating for them um, completely got flipped on its head, trying to figure out how to advocate for a transgender child in this environment. I be- yes, I remember that. Um, I re- and I have to tell you, though, that throughout all of this, you have just impressed me with the way that you have been there for both of your kids. And I mean, you're really an inspiration to me as a parent. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I centered myself and my practice on unconditional love. And at that moment, I had to realize there are a lot of things that I don't know now, but I do know that I love my child. And no matter what, no matter what, if it you know means laying my body down in the street, I will do it in order to make sure that he is able to continue to go through adolescence as his authentic self. And not just him, but all these other kids, you know, Ellie already touched on this, the privilege, you know, I acknowledge my own privilege and the privilege of my children is that so many children don't have the support that they need at home. Um, They don't have the support that they need in society. Many of them lose friends. I do have so much hope seeing things get better than they were a generation ago, but it's still a significant challenge trying to find a safe and welcoming space, whether that be at school or at home or in their larger community. One thing I want to ask um, is, Ellie mentioned the difference between loss and regret. And I'm guessing that for anyone to be themselves, um, that fear of making a change in your life um, and the fear of the loss is quite powerful although you know obviously in the long run not as as powerful as, as the regret of of not being your authentic self um and Tamara you talked about your know, unconditional love in your practice and you know Ellie's mentioned the best friend and the brother who provided that unconditional love do you think that once that change is made to being more authentic that that sort of brings out or draws out uh, the unconditional love or the support in your life and makes the structure around you also more authentic? I, I think that I really intentionally built myself and watched my son build himself a community of support um, where people are um, authentic. I think, um, you know, it was sort of like the great sorting hat kind of exper- experience at first because, you know, I just made just a made a very clear choice. Anybody who supported my children was going to be in our life, even if they weren't perfect. And I drew a line on, you know, people who are having a struggle with understanding is that you will respect my children's names and pronouns when you are with us. Um, and so it just sort of set like a clear boundary about what was acceptable behavior and what was not. And then also learning to really meet everybody else and their imperfect humanity around, around that because we all make mistakes. We all miss, have misunderstandings. Um, misgendering happens at times, unfortunately. And um, we just kind of all have to learn and grow together through all of our journeys. And I think a lot of our journeys, you know, even the journey of 
being a teenager and raising teenagers, I mean, there's some loss there. When they're cute little cherubs, you can imagine the world for them. But, you know, at some point we all become really real stinky human beings with our own frailties and imperfections and our dreams and this unfolding of, as Ellie mentioned, the unfolding of self that continues throughout our our lifetime, even, you know, in middle and later ages. I mean, I feel like I've had a whole lifetime of being misgendered and it really resonated, Ellie, when you said that, I mean, growing up in the 60s and 70s, that you have seen all of these changes take place during your lifetime. And me, I mean, I'm almost 49 and I feel like that too. When I was in high school, I mean, there was nobody in my high school that would have come out as gay or lesbian. And I graduated in 91. And now, you know, we've seen a lot of progress, you know, throughout our lives. Like now it's more accepted to be gay or lesbian, but it feels like the trans community now is kind of the target more so than, you know what I'm trying to say? Like they're kind of the new target. We are the target and it's because we're, we're not organized. We don't have an ACT UP um, version for transgender people for listeners. ACT UP was uh, gay men in uh, beginning in the early, late 70s, early 80s, and into the well into the 80s when the AIDS crisis uh, started to evolve and, and come to, to fruition. And uh, gay men weren't having it, that the government wasn't funding research and they got very vocal about it. The trans community does not, we don't have that. Um, and, and, and part of it is because the numbers are fewer, although I do have a specific theory that there are far more trans and non-binary people in the world than anybody could possibly realize. But we're not organized. And, um, and we're an anomaly and we're an easy anomaly to attack. And, and, and we don't fight back. I mean, we really don't. Yeah, there are rallies and people come and they've got the, they've got the signs and you know the, the, the bullhorns and all of that, but we don't fight back. I mean, ACT UP was fighting, they were, ACT UP was throwing fake blood at politicians to get them to pay attention. You know, maybe the trans community needs something like that. Um, I don't think I'm the one to lead that because I am a unifier, not a divider. But it is, I fear, something that will become even worse before it gets better. God forbid here in the U.S. that the elections that take place in November coming up 22, that uh, the Republicans... Um, and again, I'm not trying to divide, but that the Republicans take office because the handwriting is on the wall that one of the very first groups they will go after are transgender people. They're already doing it at the state level. They will start to do it at the federal level. Again, as the uh, Trump administration attempted to do with some success. Yeah, and they're using these tactics of fear, especially this is so egregious on on transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive youth. And this is what I think is particularly difficult at this stage of transgender rights 
is that there are so many right now the studies are like three percent of of high school students are like i said trans transgender non-binary or gender expansive they're trying to deal with adolescence in a high school full of homophobia and transphobia and um i think one of one of the challenges we have is that we ask people when they are oppressed to advocate for themselves and you know i made a i made a conscious choice and a commitment to be the advocate for my child in the in the larger world because i felt like his role was to be himself and there's enough work to be done with that um so i think that you know the fear tactics against parents and um lgbtq youth and gender nonconforming youth are particularly egregious because it's a really traumatic time to start to try to turn out um, advocacy when you're just trying to get through a lot of changes. Yeah. And let's just be clear about this, okay? Underlying all of this is the idea that being trans or non-binary, or Tamara, thanks for the gender expansive phrase, is a choice that you don't really need to do this. I literally think that that's why people feel so free to marginalize uh, my community, you know, because they're, you know, and, and the gay and the lesbian community, they, they fought this battle back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, you know, with, you know, well, hey, it's okay that you be gay or lesbian, but you just can't have, you know, you can't have sex. I mean, you can be that way in your head, you know, you can choose not to have sex. You know, society largely has gotten past that kind of thing. But the problem with trans and non-binary people is that, as I, I say that, I have a saying that we're all trying to survive the human condition. I don't care who you are, all right? But our survival, trans and non-binary people, our survival is far more public. And because of that, we're an easy mark. Even the religious kind of objection to transgender people. You know, I mean, I've had more than one person when I've presented on transgender topics, more than one in a, in a, in, you know, in audiences stand up and say, Ellie, you sound like a nice person, but God doesn't make any mistakes. You know, you're really still a guy. And so what, the, what they're really saying is, you know, you didn't have to be this way. You're just, you're just choosing to be this way. Well, and that this, you know, I'd like to continue on this idea of choice, because what it really amounts to when other people are in opposition is they are erasing transgender identity, they're erasing transgender lives, what they're saying is that you don't exist. And that is so harmful. It's not it's the worst kind of discrimination. And, um, you know, we really need to work more on that as allowing people to be live their authentic selves is what unconditional love and parenting should be about and needs to be about and not about children going through some sort of phase because we are harming our children by denying them their rights to their identity. I wish when I was a kid that non-binary had existed as an option, but it didn't. You know, I didn't, there was never a time when I was a kid where I thought that, I mean, I, I think that for one thing is we're lucky now that, I mean, our kids are growing up and they see that there are options and it is okay to be this way. And it's a blessing. I just, I, I am really discouraged by the way that um, like this ROGD, this rapid onset 
gender dysphoria. It's a pseudoscientific term. It's not real. And yet people keep making claims that it is real. Um, and the people who buy into it, of course, are parents who have trans kids. And they're like, oh, well, this is new. It must be right. Like, it's only new because your kid is only telling you about it now. It's, you know, I can see that parents are afraid and that's why they're buying into this. But I mean, you can see that it's being used also as a, a tool to deny these unfortunate kids who have parents who've bought into it. And so when I see this, I, I just, it's really obvious to me that it's a, it's just a bullshit way of, of denying kids their authenticity. Well, it's in the same category as transgenderism. It's an ism. It's not a, it's not real. It's, it's a fad. Um, you know, the kids picked it up from somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I Social contagion thing. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, so I have a saying, so if your listeners are going to take anything away from Ellie Krug, this is the one thing to take. And that is this, the human authenticity will not leave you alone until you listen to it. You know, whether it's about gender or sexuality or whether it's about you being a writer or an artist or a, or an actor or a musician or a singer or whatever, whatever. Okay. I mean, authenticity shows up in so many different ways and we have blinders on as a society as to what authenticity really is. We can't spot it. Sometimes when we see it, we believe it's a problem. I mean, in, in schools, you know, you've got the kid that wants to just do music, you know, and playing the music all the time in the classroom. It's making a problem and all of that stuff. Well, you know what? The kid's trying to have his his or her or their authenticity. They're trying to find their place in it and expand in it. But we as a society, we, we are adverse, adverse to understanding what authenticity is. Well, and the... And that is beautiful, Ellie. Um, human authenticity will not leave you alone. And so this rapid onset gender dysphoria or calling your child's um, identity a phase really gives parents a way to feel like they're good parents, but ignore the problem in front of them and not support their children. And it's devastating for children to not be supported. Same thing when parents send their children to conversion therapy to try to change them back or help them revalue and find their heteronormativity. Um, and their, you know, a binary sense of uh, gender identity is it circumvents their growth. And like I said, it gives parents a way to feel like they're good parents when really they're really so painfully hurting their children. And what I do see that's very powerful is so many um, leaders of faith talking about how all God's children are perfect. And the more we see of that, the more options we provide for parents so that they can feel like they can love their children and still have their relationship with religion. It kind of shows, though, how deep the problem of socialization goes, the society telling you what you can and can't and shouldn't be, because it shows itself in, you know, 
the transphobia it shows itself in biphobia where you know bisexuality is just a phase you'll get over it um you know telling people that you'll never make any money out of being an artist like there's at every turn it seems that society is structured to tell you who you should be and not let you be who you are authentically and it seems to be such an uphill battle just to be yourself i i agree 100 percent um uh, the answer, of course, is to understand that it's all a journey. It's not a destination, you know, to be very cliche. I do think that when people see authentic humans show up, it's contagious. I do. Not to uh, say that I'm anything great, okay? But, I mean, I speak across North America. You know, and one of the comments that I hear about why people like me and like my style is because they believe that I'm authentic. And, you know, and, and, and once they believe that you're authentic, they believe you're truthful. In my work around to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, it's about trying to motivate people to expand their perspectives and to see the world a different way and to be more inclusive to humans who are different or quote unquote other. And they have to trust you that that is a journey for them, that they should be able that, you know, that they themselves should take that journey because I'm saying it's a good journey for them to take. And, uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, my, you know, my downfall, my Achilles heel, of course, is that I look like a chick and I sound like a dude, but somehow that draws people in. It does. And I'm grateful in that sense. It doesn't get me a date, trust me, but I'm grateful for that. Really, one thing that really struck me in your book was the way that um, people told you they liked you better as a woman, that you were softer and kinder and that, you know, you had been like more aggressive and angry when you were a man. And I, I just wonder if we can talk about that for a moment, that as you became your authentic self. And of course, part of that, too, was finding Buddhism. And so, you know, can you talk a little bit about how your path to authenticity also kind of made you become a, a softer, kinder person in the world? Well, you know, Chris, absolutely. I mean, so the, you know, uh, psychology 101, frustration, aggression. So when you're suppressing, okay, you are tamping down your authenticity. You're telling your authenticity to stop, that you don't exist, that it doesn't exist, that it's wrong. You know, and I kept telling myself that, if I only did X or Y, I could choose to still stay a man. It made me incredibly angry at me and at the world. And I, you know, became this, tried to be this perfectionist, to be a perfect man, which of course around me, I mean, I ran a law firm and I could, I mean, I, people, I, I, I went through people, you know, kind of like coffee filters. I mean, because I, they had to be perfect, just like I was. And of course, no human is perfect. But it lended. I mean, I was a trial lawyer, a civil trial lawyer, representing railroads and trucking companies, entities that maim or kill people. And they would get sued. And they wanted an attack dog lawyer to fight back. And I was that lawyer for them. And they loved how aggressive that I was. Once I transitioned, they didn't love that so much because, you know, an aggressive woman, well... <laughs> we have a different phrase for that. And so once I got to be me, once I didn't have to fight myself anymore, once 
the frustration was gone. Oh, and let's throw in a little bit of estrogen didn't didn't hurt whatsoever. Uh, my brain chemistry changed. I became softer and gentler because you know what? And I know this sounds hard to believe, but I was always actually a kind and gentle human. I really was. The attack dog thing was a front um, because it was the only thing that I knew, the only way that I knew that I could make my way by denying myself. But once I stopped denying myself, it was like, no, 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 we're not going to do this attack dog stuff anymore. I quit being a, I did, I quit being a trial lawyer. Um, and I went on to do work as an idealist um, because I'd always been an idealist. I had been Bobby Kennedy and Dr. King, both of them were murdered when I was 11 years old, but before they went, their words had sank into me. And they had told me that we have an obligation to make the world a better place, but I could not do that. I could not be an idealist while I was fighting myself. But once I stopped fighting, I got to be me. It was time to be an idealist. And then Buddhism, just to finish this, I had a, a person, an important person in my life, uh, turned me on to Buddhism. I had to get past um, some negative impressions of it. I, I thought it was a voodoo religion, which of course, it's not even a religion. It's a way of living life and seeing the world. But what that, what Buddhism taught me was about the value of living, you know, in the moment, but also living truthfully and understanding that we're all interconnected. No one is separate from anyone else. We're seeing that right now play out in Ukraine. We are connected to the Ukrainians, and that's a good thing. I think that one of the things that's brilliant about Ellie's book is that through her writing, she invites people to be a part of her journey. And by showing her authenticity, it feels like you have a stake in supporting that journey. And I think about that um, with, you know, my children too, is just um, meeting people and being really authentic in my ignorance and my need for help. And that along the journey, you know, at that, you know, that first moment when I met you, Chris, I mean, I was terrified at the kind of hate that could be thrown at myself, or my family, my children. And you know, terrified of what it would be like for my son in the midst of that hate that so just permeates so much of politics and divisiveness and discourse. And I really felt like um, it was important to bring people along with the journey. And along that way, the real delicious treat was being able to meet so many idealist, um, sensitive, intelligent idealist um, people on their journeys and and being a part of one humanity. And it actually, rather than the experience making me feel like the world is full of hate, I feel myself more connected to a community of love and support. One thing I wonder about, Tamara, is what words of wisdom would you have for parents who discover that they're children are trans. I mean, are there any words that you would have that you'd like to share from your journey? I would say focus on unconditional love. Feel comfortable with not knowing everything and not being at the right place at the right time with everything because everything happens asynchronously. It's not a linear journey. A lot of things happen at once and then nothing and then more again. 
Um, there are twists and turns through the journey. Um, find the experts. Um, we had experts with us at every step and um, they were so delightful and it was so wonderful to surround ourselves with truly self-actualized adults that showed us what this journey could end like. And I am thrilled to say my, my son is thriving right now. And can I, can I add, I'm, so whenever I give a talk, I, I don't use PowerPoints. There's a handout. I always have handouts for every talk I do. And at the end of every handout, there's a paragraph that says my standing offer. And what my standing offer is, and I, as I explain in the handout and then I say verbally, so I'm willing to speak to any human in a public place or on the phone or for Zoom for up to an hour, and I don't watch my watch, to talk about anything about being trans or a family member being trans or being gay or lesbian or simply about surviving the human condition. It's nothing to do with gender or sexuality. And um, by the way, uh, Chris and Emma, I'm making that offer right now to all of your listeners, okay? They can contact me, you know, just go to elliekrug.com and they'll be able to find my email. But two weeks ago, uh, this is Tamara in response to what you just said. Two weeks ago, I had someone contact me. They had gotten my offer by way of someone else. I, mean, I also tell people the offer is transferable. They don't need to use it, but they can give it to someone. And it was the mom of a trans 11-year-old trans girl. And they were just starting the journey. And she you know, wanted to talk with me very first thing to find out if this was real. That was the very first thing she wanted to ask about. And then secondly, um, to get some resources, which I gave her. But it was interesting because I said to her, the very, Tamara, the very first thing I said to her was, you need to have a therapist. You've got to get a therapist. You, you have to have a therapist for your child as well. You might need a separate therapist for you, you and your, and your husband. She didn't sound like she was all that keen on therapy. And that scared me for, their, for her child. It really did. Because no one should go through this. No one. I don't care what age you are, whether you're 10 years old or 75 years old. And I know of people transitioning in their 70s and 80s without a therapist who knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's great advice, Ellie. And um, it's also not the easiest thing to do to find health care that addresses an individual's need in this environment. I know... Um, you know, all of these institutions are really struggling right now, but there are some amazing people out there who really want to help at every level, at every step of the journey. Well, and but we have telehealth, and I think that that needs to be expanded. And I'm sorry to say there are a bunch of therapists in Texas right now that aren't getting utilized. But Ellie, I want to thank you so much for making that offer to our listeners. And I think it's wonderful that you do that at your talks, too. That's amazing. It's wonderful to make yourself a resource like that. You know, and I, I tell people, it's not because I think I'm like someone special, come look at me. It's just because I am an idealist. I am a student. I am a student of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy. And what they said is that we have an obligation to make the world a better place. And it's not something you fit in between yoga and take out sushi. And my standing offer is actually one of the ways that I try and make the world better. People always just want somebody to listen. They really do. It's funny for me because I feel like I'm just at the beginning of my gender journey in some ways. And yet in the others, it's been my whole life like this of not feeling right as who I am. I mean, now that I'm being more open and saying, yes, I am non-binary and I'm 
using she, they pronouns because I mean, I'm, I've spent all of these years being she, it's not easy for me overnight to use they, and it's frustrating for me too. I mean, I have people in my life who are like, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to use they pronouns. Like I'm still caught up on the grammar of it. And it's like, you have to let go of that. If the APA says they and them pronouns are okay, or other like if these style guides are willing to embrace it, how can you possibly continue to make it an issue? Well, and the thing that I think people don't realize about pronouns, it's it's not about grammar. It's about recognizing and and um, somebody's identity, their truce. And when you when people laugh it off as I'm having a hard time with my grammar, what you're really doing is is laughing off the the seriousness of a person's growth. Exactly. And so, yeah, I would encourage everybody to just, if people tell you what their pronouns are, use them. Don't make a comment about them in terms of grammar. Um, it, It baffles me from a business perspective, because when we try to make inclusive workplaces, when we're talking about, you know, developing e learning modules and, you know, you don't want to refer to your suit of professionals as either she or he, you that's the direction that a lot of places are going anyway in a professional setting in order to try and be more inclusive of everybody in the workplace. So when people say it can't be done, that kind of gets up my nose. I mean, you don't walk into a networking event um, and read what's on someone's name tag and, um, you know, start calling them by some other name because you can't be bothered learning who they are it's it's seen as you know unprofessional it's not something that's new you know to call people by what they tell you you know if someone tells you they're doctor you call them doctor so that that kind of Hmm. seems to me just to be making excuses i have a saying that pronouns can be weapons or they can be gifts and um and i have been the recipient of many many gifts okay um, but I've also I've also been the recipient of pronouns as weapons, and I can tell you um, I know the difference. You can, I you know when I when I train and speak about what it means to be trans and how to be welcoming, one of the things I talk about is intent. Ninety nine percent of trans people, you know, are you know going to understand if your intent is good. Uh, you know, okay, you made a mistake on the pronoun. Don't worry about it. You know, you know, especially if you say, sorry, I mean, that's always helpful if you screw up on the pronoun, but you can also tell the intent is not good with the way they say the pronoun and with the way they look at you. And um, when that happens to me, and it does not happen all that, I mean, I get misgendered all the time because I sound like a dude as I'm sounding right now to all of your listeners, nine times out of 10, it's okay. The 10th time, it actually kills me. But when the intentional misgendering occurs, it angers me and it hurts my heart to the nth degree because I have then been deemed invisible. I I know what you mean in terms of most people, it's very unintentional. They're not mis... I mean, again, I've been misgendered my whole life and so I know that people are calling me sir because they're looking at me for a half a second and I have short hair and they're just assuming I'm a man but it's I'm sure a whole different story when it's intentional and and hurtful 
And, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. I wish that we could move to being a less gendered society in general. I mean, do we have to always call people ma'am or sir? Can't we? <laughs> Can't we make a shift so that it's not that way? It would be, it just seems like it would be easier. My son has long hair and it's, I can't tell you, I mean, how often we'll be out in public and I'll get called sir and he'll get called miss by people waiting us on us in a restaurant. And it's just, it's hard to live like this, to be constantly misgendered in society, except that I've made the choice to not let it get to me. But yeah, I don't know what the answer is in terms of like changing society and their genderedness. And of course, it's cultural too in the South. People are more trained than they are in the North to to be like ma'am and sir for everybody. Everything is moving in a direction, okay? It's moving in the direction of more egalitarianism. It's moving in the direction of more acceptance with some notable exceptions. But, uh, and I think that, you know, just like here we are in 2022, you know, you were talking about the early 90s and how different it was you know, give us to 20, the 2040s, which I'm sure I won't be around, but I, I, I'm sure that it's going to be a much different world. Look at the statistics. I mean, Gallup did a poll too, came out a couple of weeks ago, about 20% of Gen Z people are identifying as LGBTQ. I mean, that's astronomical. Okay. That might be the very first real poll, you know, realistic poll that's ever come out. With that, of course, means that you're going to get a whole lot more people that are going to be pronoun proper, a whole lot more people they are going to be accepting, a whole lot more people they are going to understand the value of, of diversity and, and, and inclusivity for all humans, which is a wonderful thing. We just got to make it to the 2040s. That's all. You're right. You're right. That is encouraging. It's true. But as you brought up, I mean, in Texas, like, we really are facing a lot right now in the U.S. where, you know, we have states that are conservative and trying to like, take their stand when it comes to trans rights. It's it's very disheartening. Um, I think it's I think the proper word is that it's horrendous. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, and in and in the long run. You know, what it will do is it will drive people out of Texas. It will drive smart people out. It will, it will cause people to decide they don't want to move to Texas, just like I so much wanted to go back to Iowa um, two years ago because I'm an Iowan. It's in my blood. I mean, I live in Minnesota now, but it's in my blood. I wanted to go back to Iowa. That's where I wanted to take my last breaths. But, you know, the, the election went so red and then the you know the republican senate leader said well we have a mandate now from the voters well if you're transgender and you hear the word mandate come out of the mouth of a politician tamara you know this right you hear that word come out of their mouth that means among other things they're coming after you transgender people and so i decided not to go back to iowa and instead i bought a house invested in furniture and all kinds of things in Minnesota. The state of Minnesota, the state of Iowa lost all of those dollars. Plus they lost my brain. I think you make a really good point, Ellie, about um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's their loss. Um, I guess I try to keep my focus on building the community that I want to see and working on, you know, just like Ellie's doing diversity and inclusion trainings. Um, last, one of the reasons that I ran for school board was so that we could pass a gender inclusion policy, which is a policy that outlines um, children's or students use of restrooms, um, their right to their pronouns and name changes. And um, the process, I think, was frightening for the community in some ways because it opens up divisiveness. But I was really overwhelmed with the amount of support that we had from the community. And if, if the hateful rhetoric does nothing good, except it does clue people in to how tough it is to be LGBTQ, especially transgender in today's world, even though there are tons of resources and experts and supports and so many generations that have gone before this. Um, you know, I think it was interesting for me to watch a lot of people through the process have their eyes open to how much hate does get thrown at towards transgender people. And it really activated a lot of those people too to be take a much more public stance in the support of transgender kids. You know, I have a I have a saying that 98% of all people have good empathetic hearts, 2% total sociopath, but the other 98% are good. Um, it's just that, you know, we're either not paying attention to exercise their empathetic hearts, but I moved from downtown Minneapolis out to the, I, I'm not even in the suburbs, I'm in the exurbs. And I'm in a very, very conservative area with many evangelical religious people. And I've gotten to just know them a little bit and they've gotten to know me a little bit. And you know what? They're okay with me being transgender. For me, that is the epitome of the work that I do, which is the power of human familiarity, a power of getting to know another human understanding that they're trying to survive the human condition just like you are. I'm proving it out here in a place where I am absolutely the only transgender person, visible one at least, for miles around. I'm glad to hear that. That's encouraging. It is. Tamara, I want to say to you that, well, and I don't want to gush because I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I, ha I want you to know that it's been really amazing for me to watch your journey, to see you not only support your children like you have, but to run for school board and win. <laughs> I was so excited on election night to see that you actually won and for you to go back and get your master's in advocacy and political leadership. I mean, it really has been inspiring to be your friend. And I just want to acknowledge that it's it's just been cool to watch your process and to see you make these changes in your life and be an advocate for your kids and to help them. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was, it was a really pivotal moment when my son came out because I realized that if he was going to have the courage to live his authentic life, that I needed to do the same thing for myself. And not only has it made me a better, happier person, but also, you know, it continues to have that impact of showing other people how if you just stand up a little bit more for yourself and the people around you, you can make the world a better place. As we wrap up, I just I know that a lot of people want to be good allies for trans people and they're not sure how to do that. 
how can we be better allies for the trans community? So I have two things to understand it's not a choice. I mean, literally to, to you know, and, and by the way, reach out to me and I'll give you a tool set on how to understand that. But just first to understand that it's not a choice. It's, it's just not. And secondly, absolute compassion. To have it for trans people and non-binary people, but actually to have it for all humans, please. Okay, now you're hearing my Buddhism. But to have that compassion for all humans, but also to have compassion for yourself. If you don't have compassion for you, if you don't love you, if you don't care for you, if you are telling yourself in your head every day that you are unworthy or that you're no good or that you're not good enough, it is so easy to not have compassion for others. But if you care for yourself, which I, Chris, as you read in the book, it was a journey of me coming to love myself. As difficult as that was, because that meant that I had to love me more than other people. That was so hard to do. But eventually I had compassion for me, for Ellie. And if you have compassion for you, it's unlimited as to how you have you can have compassion for others. So I would say that do what I did is take that courage that transgender people have and think about how you can be just a little bit more visibly courageous in your own daily life. Use pronouns so that it signals for other people that it's safe for them to, to share their pronouns. Um, I always found it wonderful going through the schools and meeting with teachers and doctors when they had LGBTQ pins or signs at their doors because, um, you know, even lawn signs, um, because I knew that I was safe there. Um, it's, it's really terrifying at times walking into an environment and, you know, you don't know who's going to get you and who's not going to get you. And whether or not there's going to be discrimination coming from somebody's um, ignorance or lack of training, or it's going to be a safe and supportive environment. So I just always found like those visible touches of, of support really lowered my stress levels so that I could know that I was in a safe place to ask for what, you know, my children needed. Ellie, what would you say to the person who knows that they're trans and they're held back by the fear of coming out as trans and making their transition? Well, I would, I would say a lot to them, but I mean, one thing I would say is that human authenticity won't leave you alone until you listen to it. I mean, you, you can't out drink it. You can't out drug it. You can't out exercise it. You can't out ignore it. It will, wake you up at two in the morning. It will yell at you at the most inopportune times and it won't leave you alone until you listen to it. And I would say, think, if you can, depending on your age, but think about how you might look back on your life as you lay on your deathbed. Would you want to look back and, and think about all the riches you or love you had accumulated, while that's important, it pales in comparison to realizing 
that you didn't be you because being you trumps everything. It does. Thanks to both of you. This has been great. I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on and have this conversation with us. I'm honored that you would ask for me to be here and thank you so very much for me to be able to espouse Ellie Krug's philosophy on the world. <laughs> well, thank you, Ellie. I always find you so professional, so human, so authentic, and so inspiring. Um, I've learned so much from watching and, and um, listening to you. Ditto back at you, Tamara. You're, you're like rocking it, and you are, you're doing far more than what I can do because you are more visible than I am. So thank you. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast with us today. Um, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. Thank, uh, thank you, Chris and Emma. We're, I'm thrilled to have been here, and I really appreciate it. And thank you, Chris and Emma, for um, bringing attention to this really important matter. Um, these human beings are our children, our loved ones, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, and they need to be supported and embraced for the wonderful being beings of light that they are. And um, I really appreciate you bringing this, bring this up so that their outcomes can be much better. Those are some excellent sentiments for us to leave it on. So thank you very much, Chris, um, as always, for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. We always appreciate you joining us. Um, if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, don't forget to hit those stars and give us a rating. And I think you'll agree this has been a particularly insightful episode. As always, if you have any questions, feedback or topics that you want to discuss, feel free to get in contact with us. You can email us at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Instagram. And until next time, Keep walking that important path to your authentic self.